a CTV original podcast produced by Bell Media Studios. This podcast contains adult themes and violence. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Marcy Ian, and this is Taken Abroad, Episode 2, The Price of Paying Ransom. He's the latest Canadian kidnapped in Nigeria, 51-year-old Robert Two days Crow. now, Jordan's government has been asking for proof of life. After Once these that... seven Edmonton pipeline workers and an American co-worker were abducted and held hostage... Kaduna, Nigeria. Today, the area is a hotbed for international kidnappings. But 10 years ago, hostage-taking was unheard of here. That is, until Canadian Julie Mulligan is violently ripped from her car and abducted. John answered the phone. He would come right out of his sleep. I said, John. And she says, John. And I said, uh, what's wrong? And I said, haven't you heard? And he said, heard what? And then I started to cry and I said, I've been kidnapped. The kidnappers demand a six-figure ransom for her safe return. Did you think you were gonna die? I thought that I might never come back. Yeah. What's going through your mind? Are you thinking of home? What are you thinking? This is terrifying. This is terrifying. I can't actually explain that feeling of that that sheer terror. I wasn't thinking of home. I was thinking, what the hell's happening? Julie tells me that two men with a machine gun watch over her and that a third man, the driver, comes and goes. She has no idea who her kidnappers are or why she's been taken. I was trying to figure out what was going on, trying to even grasp that I had been kidnapped. That was like, that was super difficult for me to get through my head. I have actually been kidnapped. This isn't a game. It's not something that I can pull myself out of at the moment anyways. Here I am. So daylight breaks and reality sets in. I saw two very dark, menacing men across from me who spoke a language that I had no, I, I had never heard, the dialect hadn't heard, you know, it made zero sense to me. With a machine gun. And so with that machine gun, you know, machine gun has a way of eliciting respect. And so I knew that definitely they were the ones in charge. And what's your mindset at that point? My mindset was looking around, realizing that I was in an unfinished house that was under construction. So we were in the very back room, whatever that was. And what did it look like? So under construction, how? Just the walls? Cement walls, uh, no floor, no ceiling. And it was a construction site. And then also trying to assess and figure out these men that were sitting across from me who had been looking after me all night, taking turns sleeping, talking while I just sat and stared. Twelve ten a.m. That's exactly when he came in. Um, 
my door flew open and John leaned in and you know it's like all you see is the light and like a silhouette and I see John lean in and I was half asleep and he said Stephanie wake up like we have to go like what like so confused and he said your mother's been taken and then he left that's Julie's daughter Stephanie Today, sitting in front of me, she actually looks and sounds a lot like her mom. But in 2009, she's a teenager. And I was sitting there thinking about it. I was like, okay, she's been taken. Like, taken where? Taken to the airport? Taken to the mall? I don't know. And then he leans back in and he says, she's been kidnapped. Now get up and come to the kitchen. I thought he meant she's been taken but now she's back. I thought, you didn't realize it was an active situation. Yeah, I thought it was past. I thought, okay, this, this thing happened, and now it's over, and now our trip's over. Like, bummer. I didn't realize that this was like a current crisis. Finding out that my mom was the one who called John, and she was like, John was like, hey, how's it going? She's like, don't you know what's happening? And he said, what? And then at that moment, that split second, I think about that all the time, is that she called and expected, like, the Calvary there. And nobody knew. Like, imagine how she felt. She must have been, like, just sunk. How hard was that to say to the kids, this is what's happened? It was very difficult because we were all in a state of shock not knowing where she was at, not knowing what to do. And at that moment, not knowing where to go. And I'm the type of person that not only plans, but I always have a backup. And I was upset at myself that I didn't have a backup. I, sh- I, I just, I was upset. At what point did reality set in? where it was, this is our life now. Um, And the people started coming. At 12.30 a.m., John picks up the phone and calls his close friend, Terry Trader. As soon as he got off the phone with Julie, he called me, uh, going, what do do I do? You know, he's just, well, he's absolutely beside himself, of course. So so then it's... um, well, what are we going to do? I, you know, I washed over. We Terry has known the Mulligans for 20 years. He's also the incoming president of the Rotary Club, the humanitarian organization that sent Julie to Nigeria. We would never send anybody to a place that wasn't deemed to be dangerous. Uh, there, there was some kidnappings in southern Nigeria, but it was always about corporates. It was about oil, oil people, um, and and and, uh, and it was all about money. It was, and it, you know, there wasn't any of the terrorist activity that there is now or has been, you know, in recent years in Nigeria. So, it's one a.m. when he pulls into John's driveway. John's son Greg Mulligan arrives minutes later. So you get there, and tell me what happens as you go through the door. Come to the door. He grabbed me. Uh, just kept on saying, they have her, they have her. I asked, who has her? He said, we're not sure. Um, got a phone call saying that Julie was kidnapped. Um, and then just kind of shuffled to the side. 
and people started coming through the door. The chaos started. Julie and John's family and closest friends debate what to do next. Should they call the police? The kidnapper told me that uh, don't, don't involve the police. Or should John obey the kidnappers and try to gather the $136,000? You know, we're talking uh, amongst ourselves about is there, is there kidnap insurance, ransom insurance, that sort of thing. And as it turned out, or what does Rotary have? A Rotary didn't have anything. And... And in fact, the, the whole idea of insurance or the whole idea of paying a ransom, that's not that easy because it's illegal in Canada to pay ransom. It can take a long, long time, a year to get it there illegally and hand it over, again, illegally to an illegal group. Uh, so it's very clandestine. And the only way you can really do that is to hire mercenaries, which will cost you far more than what, what the ransom is. So that was a predicament for us. Were you in favor of one way over another? I mean, we just, if, if this will get her back, that's what you do, right? I mean, it's it's the wrong thing to do because it puts dollar signs on Rotarians' heads and, uh, and and all travelers, I suppose. So, of course, it's the wrong thing to do. But if it's your, your family, your friend, your the person you love, you do whatever, you do whatever, just, you know, we'll get her back and, and whatever the money is, we'll, we'll raise it. So tell me more about the ransom and whether or not you thought, well, we can raise this, can't we? Can't we just do this? I was sitting in the living room with my group of people and um, some, of the, some of the people said, don't worry about the money. Um, we'll look after that part. All you need to do is worry about talking to Julie and all that part. You had the money. We had the money. So you had the money. Why not pay it? Well, um, number one is uh, Canada doesn't pay ransom. In 2016, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said, Canada does not and will not pay ransom directly or indirectly. Paying ransom for Canadians would endanger the lives of every single one of the millions of Canadians who live, work, and travel around the globe every single year. If John decides to pay ransom, he goes against the Canadian government. But one wrong decision could cost Julie her life. Now imagine a loved one's missing and you're confronted with all of these choices every one of which can go horribly wrong and have a seriously detrimental impact. What we offer to families who suffer is, is bringing uh, really calm to chaos. We can help them understand the process of what's going on, the full magnitude of what's happening, uh, how to get their loved ones back. That's Dr. Frank Grimm. He's an international hostage negotiator and director of crisis response at global security firm Constellis. He's helped hundreds of families in the same situation as John and Julie. Some countries, such as the United States, Canada, and the UK, have an official policy of not paying ransom. Can you explain the rationale behind that? Not paying a ransom for one, say, Canadian citizen that's held abroad, uh, or rather paying a ransom. If you were to pay a ransom for a Canadian citizen held abroad, that may endanger other Canadian citizens. And I understand that rationale. 
If the family of a captive decides to work with law enforcement to get their loved one back, that would be the RCMP in our country, and that would be the FBI in yours. But generally speaking, in developed countries, what can we expect when officers or agents show up? You can expect structure, assets, networks, a great source of information and contact, diplomatic links. That's oftentimes what they're able to bring to the situation. They bring also experience and equipment. So they, they offer an awful lot. What about the pitfalls? I've never been involved with a law enforcement unit that was over-resourced. And I say that not, not really tongue-in-cheek, but as an example. They're typically under-resourced, well-meaning, well-experienced, well-trained, the very best that a government can provide. But they also have competing objectives. They also have bosses that get involved. They have media they have to watch out for. They have maybe other cases that they're also balancing. Once the ransom is paid, though, is there any possibility that the kidnappers come back and say, we want more, and they up the price? Do we know that this happens? You might call it a double hit in some businesses where a ransom payment is made. Typically, if someone were to pay, for instance, too much and too fast, you're seen as someone who is a juicy target and you are, you are well-funded and you are flexible and very compliant. If you seem to be too eager to pay and that you have plenty of resources, oftentimes they'll take the very first payment, hang on to the victim, you'll undergo a long silence and then get a message explaining why the victim wasn't released and that thank you for funding our operation, we would now like to see uh, you know, further payments, a series of payments, or another, uh, some other payment down the road. So it, does, it has happened. With heavy consequences on either side, the decision comes down to John. We went for about three, four hours of working back and forth. But at approximately four o'clock in the morning, we phoned the RCMP, the local RCMP. And within a very short time, they were in our house. So they basically uh, came in and they sat us down and they, I'll never forget it, they said, your house is in shutdown. When the negotiators came over is when things got real. His name is Brad and he was large and strong. Well, from that moment, um, the RCMP basically took over the house. They quickly put parameters in place. They put um, guidelines for us to, um, to uh, go by. My producers reached out to the RCMP and Global Affairs Canada to see if we could talk to the lead negotiators, but they declined. With the RCMP unable to comment on their tactics, I turned back to Dr. Frank Grimm to tell us what happens when hostage negotiators step in. What specifically happens when they get there? Do they shut the house down? Do, do authorities tap telephones? Sometimes they do. What they'll want to do is record each conversation, number one, to maintain a proper log so that you can review it in case something was missed or forgotten about. You're going to want to be able to understand and analyze everything to include background noises, uh, the tenor tone, speech pop patterns, the cadence of perhaps a loved one they allowed you to speak to on the telephone. We had a table in the, ki in the kitchen, dining room, 
and they basically told me where I was going to be sitting. Brad and Charmaine were on either side of me, and um, they said, all we want you to do is read what we write. Don't say anything else, just read what I write. With John and the phone taps in place, officers move quickly to control who comes in and who leaves the house. Uh, the RCMP said, you pick um, the people that you trust most in the world, and those are the only people that can come and go. And they will do your errands, they will go to the post office, they will cook, they will clean, they will shop, they will do everything. Uh, you just uh, you just want to stay close to the phone, of course, because you never know when Julie's going to get a chance to phone. So we're all sort of delegated different positions. We would take turns cooking, you know, every or, or, or bring a meal in from somewhere, from a restaurant every day. And so we just, we were just bunkered down in his house. And uh, again, with limited, limited access, doors are locked and you can't come in unless you're part of that, part of that small group. The house is locked down. John and Terry wait for the RCMP's next instructions. The RCMP uh, said, John, you have to limit the, the, the media. We, we don't want any media at all because the more media, the higher the prices. If, if it becomes a, a, a bigger deal, international news, that sort of thing, then the price goes up always and the negotiation takes longer and it's, a, and it's just harder. So we have to limit that. Early media attention doesn't just drive up the ransom. Dr. Grimm tells me it could also send the wrong message to the captors. What we won't want to do is to scare off the perpetrators and cause them to back away, assuming that they would probably be captured or that their risk has gone up. Once it hits the media, they feel their risk has gone up. What they typically do is go into silence. When they go into silence, that's almost the worst thing that could possibly happen to a family, a crisis management team. Uh, it attends the elongate, uh, the captivity period. It can also have the effect of getting ransom, them increasing their demands, uh, perhaps, because now they realize it's a, a juicier target or a famous person. Uh, if they didn't know that, they surely would know that once it hits the media. So controlling the message and timing the message is very important because we don't want a negative impact on an already volatile situation. The RCMP even wanted a media ban, a local news ban. Yeah. How did that go? Well, that that took place around the f first day. Um, and the way Brad explained it to us was, can you, do you know the editor of our local paper? And I said, of course. And uh, he said, can you call him and ask for silence from him? He says, you're going to have to confide in him. You're going to have to tell him what's going on. And you're going to have to ask him not to do anything. Do you think he will do that? And I said, I'm sure he will. But I've been told many times that it, there was a hush in the town and it got around town very quick that they tried to keep it silent. She's been missing in Nigeria, kidnapped in the northern city of Kaduna while on a road The silence doesn't last long. News gets out. I've got some of the headlines here in front of me. The Saskatoon Star Phoenix publishes a front-page story, Alberta woman kidnapped in Nigeria. The Toronto Star 
has a picture of Julie. It looks like it's taken right before her trip. The headline reads, Kidnap Victim Identified as Rotarian from Alberta. And then there is this one from the Vancouver Sun. This one stands out most. It actually reveals the ransom request, reporting captors demand 136000 for kidnapped women. And during the chaos of all of this breaking news... The phone rang. Brad and Charmaine were on either side of me. And uh, they said, all we want you to do is read what we write. Don't say anything else. Just read what I write. I picked up the phone. And it was Julie. And uh, and she says... And same thing. Asked, when are you coming with the money? When are you going to send the money? And what was John saying? We're working on it. That was his constant... Yeah, that was his constant. And, I mean, you got to remember... This is what they were writing on the piece of paper. And then it was a very short conversation always, and then the boss took the phone away. How did she sound? Scared. After the call, Julie tells me she stands silent with the boss in the half-built house. The sun beats down on her. She summons the nerve to ask him a very bold question. I asked him why he was doing it. And he said, I've been hired by three big men. And I said, have you done this before? And he said, yes, three times. And it was really hot underneath this, uh, underneath this sun without a roof. But when he told me about the third one, I had a chill so deep. He told me that his father was a traditional leader in a village and there had been kind of a coup and his his father had been killed so he kidnapped one of the men who was involved in the coup and killed him so the person that he had had before you he killed yes at that point did you think okay this could be it yeah i knew i was in trouble when he was in big trouble then for sure. Julie's being held captive by a kidnapper who has killed before. Suddenly, there's a case to be made for paying up. On the next episode of Taken Abroad, John's forced to cut off all contact with Julie. And uh, he said, you can't pick up the phone anymore. And your immediate thought was what? What are you talking about? I can't talk to my wife. In Kaduna, Julie learns that her abductors are ready to get rich or die trying. And I said to him, I said, you're not going to shoot the police if they come. And he said, I will, and I'm not going down alone. Taken Abroad is written and produced by Charlie Smith. Sound production by Elizabeth Kay. Kelly Peckham is our field director. Visual researchers are Elise Forster and Blake Glassbergen. Original theme music by Nick Fowler. And the executive producer is Kelly McEwen.